Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. In light of the cops ramping up their brutality against protesters across the U.S., last month or so, and in light of all the conversation around defunding the police and police abolition, I thought this would be a great time to talk about good news for the tormented and bad news for the pigs. Today, we're going to engage a story in the Bible about a demonic armed wing of the state and a violent exorcism that Jesus performs, which leads to the drowning of pigs. This will be somewhat of a follow-up to my recent conversation with Timothy Snedeker on the police and whiteness and anti-blackness and innocence in episode 46. So if you haven't checked that out, you should. Also, the the reading list I mentioned in that first episode has also been placed in the show notes for this one, just in case you're interested. But today, I want to engage the gospel according to Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Then, we'll reflect on what role the police in liberal capitalist democracies actually have and why that is their primary function. And we're going to talk about the actual function and role of policing in in the world because policing isn't an individual problem. It's a problem of who the state or the government, including the police, actually belongs to. And finally, we can wrap it all up by imagining a good old exorcism. Cool. And just to throw this out there, this isn't some kind of abstract talk about police in theory. Unless you've been intentionally avoiding it, you've seen in the last few months what police will do to even protesters. And just weeks ago, three cops who patrolled for decades, just a few hours away from my home in North Carolina, were outed because they got caught on a recording talking about putting bullets in the heads of black women and wanting to buy up military-grade weapons for a civil war waged for the purposes of wiping black people off the map. And let me also set aside any notions of reform up front. Lack of racial representation or training on racial bias isn't the problem with the institution of the police. The problem cannot be simply reduced to individual prejudice or uh, a minor flaw to an otherwise good and just system. But if you are convinced that trainings on racial bias or diversifying police forces are our much-needed solutions, then I recommend picking up a copy of From Hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamata-Taylor, as well as The End of Policing by Alex Vitali, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Yeah, both of those books are in the recommended book list that I've mentioned uh, in the show notes. I think both of those books do a great job at undermining the reformists' hope in diversification or rooting out racial bias. But as I said, in this episode, I want to engage Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. The purpose of the police from a Marxist perspective and then maybe dream of a revolutionary exorcism. But before we dive into the text, let's say a few things about the context from which this violent and politically charged gospel story emerges. The gospel, according to Mark, 
is the earliest written gospel we have access to, and it was written shortly after 70 CE, which is roughly 35 years after Jesus' execution in the living body of Christ, as Paul refers to it, had been resurrected and made alive. And the Gospel of Mark wasn't written in response to nothing. No, in the few years prior to the writing of the earliest gospel we have, Judean revolutionaries had been resisting and battling with one of the most powerful militaries the world had yet to see. But in 70 CE, Roman generals with three legions, which were well-armed and highly trained soldiers of the Roman Empire, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And it was a slaughter. Beginning just days before the Passover, this huge season of celebration for Jews, the walls were crumbled, bodies were dismembered, and the temple, which was the second temple to be constructed, went up in flames. The zealots, which were a sect of Jews who believed in armed struggle and resistance, fought bravely and valiantly, and if I remember correctly, Although seriously outnumbered, these rebels gave their imperial oppressors an incredible fight to their dying breath. I think the last few actually ended up uh, taking their own lives before the legions, right, the armed wing of the Roman Empire, could get their hands on them and probably give them the same fate that Jesus and hundreds of thousands of others living under the Roman Empire had already come to know. And so Rome sacks Jerusalem with sword and with fire. And out of the flames, up from all this bloodshed, the good news, according to Mark, is written. That's the context in which the earliest gospel we have emerges from. The gospel comes to us after legions are sent to crush the revolting and rebelling masses who had become sick and tired of being oppressed, of being exploited, and of seeing so much unnecessary suffering caused by Rome's social, political, and economic order of things. This, my friends, was spiritual war. And so Mark starts off the gospel by showing that Jesus meets the requirements that the Messianic Jewish tradition had said was necessary if one was to truly be the coming Messiah. We've got the prophetic John the Baptist preaching of his coming. Then the Spirit of God rests with Jesus at his baptism. And after being driven deep into the wilderness, Jesus returns and starts his ministry by rounding up a posse and performing some badass miracles. But miracles weren't simply thought of as super cool magic tricks. No, miracles were supposed to have material consequences for people who were often at risk of losing limbs from diseases, dying from illnesses, going hungry, and tormented by demons that disrupted the possibility of personal and relational and communal well-being. Miracles, the people believed, were supposed to positively impact the people's mental, spiritual, and physical well-being. There was inseparably a social, political, and economic dimension to this spiritual war being waged. And so, in Mark, after a couple exorcisms and a bunch of healings and a few parables about an alternative kingdom of God that was to one day overthrow and replace the current kingdom of Caesar, we get to chapter 5, where Mark tells us just how politically charged and violent the coming kingdom of God will be to the well-armed, highly trained soldiers of the empire. 
An evil and unclean spirit has possessed a man living in the country of Gerasenes. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I don't really know. However, this demon has a name. Or or these demons, I guess. Oh yeah, I don't know. It's plural and singular, I guess. Has a name. And given the historical context we just talked about, it would be absurd not to take this demon's name seriously. In verse 9, Jesus asks the demon, What is your name? And the spirit replies, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I kid you not, and maybe you grew up hearing this interpretation as well, but when I heard this story for the first 20-some-plus years of my life, I was led to believe that the story was making a comment simply about the number of demons inside this person. End of story. Oh, wow. A legion? That's many. That's more than one. I mean, this person is like super possessed. <laughs> you know, I, maybe you've heard of that. But let's be serious here. Um, months before this story would be written for this gospel, legions were sent to Jerusalem to crush a zealot-led armed revolution against the Roman Empire. They brought sword and fire to the city into the place where the, pre the very presence of God was said to dwell. Legions slaughtered their friends and family, destroyed their communities, and laid what was rebuilt centuries earlier under the leadership of prophet Jeremiah to ruins. So let's continue. The demons know that Jesus is about to bring healing to this person and to the community, which requires the kicking of their demonic asses. And so, in verse 12, they beg him, Send us into the swine. Let us enter them. And that is exactly what Jesus does. The demons are sent into the animal. But pigs are not just any animal. Pigs, for the author and for the first century Jewish audience, are disgusting and unclean animals. They are not to be messed with, or cooked, or even on Sundays touched, which makes them, according to the author, a perfect home for the demonic soldiers of the empire. These soldiers do the bidding of the Roman elite. They enforce Roman law, and in some ways they make Roman law, and in every way they reproduce the social, political, and economic order of things. Legions are tormentors of the masses of oppressed and exploited peoples, but they more brutally torment groups like the poorest of the poor and potentially rebellious populations like Galilean Jews. And according to the author, the soldiers of this state are as vile as pigs. And in verse 13, we read, The herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. You know, when I read this, I thought it was interesting. This is not the first time in the scriptures where the power of God is used to violently drown the powerful enforcers of the enemy's law. You know the story of the drowning Egyptians who were hunting down the fleeing slaves on their advanced weaponry. You've heard about the witness of Isaiah calling for the justice of God to flow down like rushing and crushing waters. And now we have the soldiers of the latest empire 
being drowned deep in the sea in the bodies of pigs. Healing and liberation is possible for the tormented and for the community. Freedom is a good that should be struggled for, yet I don't think it's that absurd to read this story as suggesting that the coming realm of God and the work of Jesus' followers will not end well for the armed enforcers of oppressive and exploitative status quos. Now, some of you may be thinking, yes, but we here in the United States, we live in a democracy. And if you don't like something about the police, well, get out the vote, as the Democrats like to say. Or better yet, why don't you just run for mayor yourself? Well, thank you, hypothetical person, for raising those points, because we can now conveniently transition into the next part of the podcast in which we will discuss what the police are really for, the actual function of the police, from particularly a materialist and Marxist perspective. Again, if there's even a hint of hope that diversifying police forces or implementing racial bias training or adding programs where cops spend more time with homeless people and LGBTQ children would meaningfully address the problems of policing, I highly recommend starting with uh, uh, Kienga Yamata-Taylor's and uh, Alex uh, Vitali's books that I mentioned in the reading list, all right? Um, but after you've gone through those... Vladimir Lenin's State and Revolution is a really important follow-up. I believe Christians, committed to the work of liberation and abolition, can learn a lot from this work of Lenin's about current power structures and about what will be required of us if we actually hope to create a wholly other world, a world after white supremacy and capitalism. And one thing that State and Revolution does is it helps keep us from believing that the people can simply reform away the stuff we don't like about policing. That policing itself under bourgeois or capitalist democracies isn't part of the problem, but simply needs a little tweaking or correcting so that it can perform its true role of serving and protecting everyone equally. All right? I mean, that that's just not happening. So, to understand why reform is a really, really bad final goal to have, let alone strategies that suggest we could actually vote or even march our way into a world without the police, we have to get behind the myths that tell us contemporary democracies under capitalism are classless societies, full of free people, and that the government, right, the state, belongs to and serves everyone equally. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. All right, so capitalist societies, Marxist analysis, uh, analysis helps us see, are rife with particular antagonisms, contradictions, and conflicts of interest. Capitalism divides us into particular class positions, but the interests of the minority ruling capitalist class in particular are in contradiction, right? They conflict with the interests of everyone else. The interests of capitalists, but especially the wealthiest, most powerful ruling elite, clash with the emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical well-being of everyone and everything else, including the creatures and soil and water and air of the beloved creation, and vice versa. The dignity and livelihood, and this is important, the economic and political power of the bottom majority of people, and even the flourishing of the planet, 
collides with the economic and political interests of the ruling capitalist elites. If you don't believe me, ask your boss for a pay raise and a decrease in hours so that you can spend more time doing what we Christians like to call loving God and loving others. You know, spending time with loved ones, resting and playing and living, organizing for the betterment of your community and not at work. Ask your lender to not profit off your debt dependence or your landlord to hand over the roof over your head and stop accumulating more and more private property. Just ask capitalist superpowers like the U.S. to abolish the IMF, remove the 800-plus military bases we've set up in everyone else's backyard, and restore all broken contracts with indigenous peoples. Liberal capitalist democracies, and now the world, which has come under the rule of capital, are rife with class contradictions and class conflict. And so, when it comes to government institutions and the law of our bourgeois democracies, Lenin implores us to see that the state, the politicians, and the enforcers of law do not serve all people equally. Cops have a job to do, and their job is to protect the interests, also known as the property, of the dominant class through the barrel of a gun and even drones and tanks and cyber surveillance now, too. Many Christians, socialists, and communists share in their vision of a world without police. But Marxism, in particular, can help Christians see how the state is a tool of violence for class rule. Early on, capitalists realized that they needed to possess the law in order to endlessly maximize profits and expand their capital. And so the police were created to protect not the people, but the property and power and wealth of individual capitalists, the ruling capitalist class, and capitalist nations attempting to colonize or enslave other peoples. And this here is just one way that hints the reality that capitalism isn't race or gender neutral. Capitalism and white supremacy are interlocking and interrelated. You don't have one without the other. And I believe that they are literally inseparable. Property and work and capital and wealth and class are deeply racialized realities. And whiteness and white supremacy can't be reduced to cultural or political issues as the mainstream discourse would like us to believe. White supremacy is deeply concerned with profit and with the governing of labor and with the ownership of the means of production and with economic power. And so in the U.S., the demonic armed wing of the state does not patrol and snatch and harass the masses of racialized working people equally. The enemy in blue disproportionately torments black bodies and indigenous bodies and the bodies of other persons racialized as non-white. The primary function of policing in this white supremacist capitalist democracy is not to serve and protect the people. Why would it when the state belongs to the ruling class whose interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the people? Again, the state is a tool of violence for class role. And so the police ultimately exist to reproduce the current social, political, and economic order of things with all of its class, racial, and gendered relations. And to wrap this up, I want to say one last thing. The dominant class in the U.S. isn't just going to hand over the state. 
including its military and police forces. Which is why an exorcism like the one in our story, a violent driving of the legions out of our communities and into the depths of the sea, will at some point be necessary if we ever hope to get free. If we ever hope to know a world constituted by black and indigenous freedom. If we ever hope to emancipate labor and life from the blood-sucking rule of capital, we must begin to imagine and prayerfully work towards an exorcism that wouldn't simply make our tormentors a little nicer, but would send them deep into the depths of the sea. The work of Jesus, the work of the church, and the realization of the coming beloved community does not end well for the police who do not betray the ruling class by joining the ranks of the people. The police and the military cannot be reformed because it is their job to control and punish and kill when social persuasion starts to crumble, when trust in the system starts to waver. That is what it means to police. It doesn't matter if an individual cop isn't screaming the N-word at black people in the streets. It doesn't matter if the cop can speak Spanish, is female, or is black themselves. Pigs are pigs not because of who they are individually, but because of who they truly serve in a white supremacist, capitalist world. And for that, they must be cast out of our lives into the depths of the sea. What is good news for the tormented will be bad news for the pigs. Friends, thanks for listening, and a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.